Welcome to another episode of our live chats with Mike Kottmeyer. We've decided to give this a name. So this is going to be called First Principles with Mike Kottmeyer. I'm Dave Pryor. I'll be asking Mike lots of irritating questions and trying to make him as angry as possible. Well, um, it's, not, it's not that they're here. To, so let's explain why we decided to call it First Principles. You want to have that conversation yeah. first? Yes, Mike, why did we decide to call it first principles? (laughs) Because every time Dave asks me a question, I go, that's the wrong question. (laughs) It's like, seriously, it's like, it's the wrong question. You know, how do you do PMO, governance, blah, 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 risk management, metrics, reports, whatever. And I go, that's the wrong question. And so like every time I try to answer a question for Dave, I go, well, let's bring it back to first principles. Let's see what's, let's see what's like, how would you build an argument? How would you answer the question? And so we sat here for 20 or 30 minutes before we went live and, and we're just talking about how to, how to get things back to first principles. So we decided to, we decided to name the, the, the session that. Yeah. So if you send in questions, thank you very much for doing that. I did try to get all yeah. those questions on the docket. But like well, Mike so, said. What we'll do, so what we'll do is we'll, we'll, we'll acknowledge the question and then we'll go to first principles and we'll try to answer it in a way that is like, that's like a good answer, I think. Okay. So let's start out with the questions that you asked me don't have any easy answers, right? That's the problem there, right? No easy answers. So I have one I would like to raise. It says, moving, a, this is how the question was submitted, moving a large yeah. traditional siloed technology and change function to an organization built around domains and agile dash first step question mark. Okay. So, okay. So let's see if we can, let's see if we can repeat the question before we get to first principles, right? So I've got a large organization with very siloed domains. And I'm assuming by that we want to say we have like a development group and we have a test group and we have have a project management group and a product management group. And right. So they're not all organized together and we want to move them to be organized around domains. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, I think is, is the change management piece of it. The change management piece is really like how you get there. It's not really like changing the change management organization. It's like, is it is it changing how we get to the solid organization or is it change management within the project organization? My my Help guess, because I get this question okay. a lot, is this is there's some kind of change control board. It's more of a change traditional change management process. Because okay. if we say we're going to be able to make adjustments every two weeks. That's got to go through a change control board every two weeks. How can I keep reprioritizing the product backlog and all the other stuff? So it's the way okay. back traditional approach. Okay. That's my interpretation. Okay. So, so now you see why we have to go to first principles every time, right? So, so if you think about it, if you think about like the anatomy of an agile team, okay? The anatomy of an agile team is a, a dedicated group of people that own the technology that have alignment with the business, okay? And they have some degree of autonomy to decide. So like the big challenge that we face when we go into a traditional organization and we're starting to go down this path, the the first thing you've got to do is you've got to be able to build the case that that's the kind of organization that you want, okay? You got to be able to build the case. And so like what we'll do is we'll go in and we'll typically run like a workshop that basically talks about the principles of agile teaming, where backlogs come from, how to produce working tests and software. You know, if you guys have seen my Why Agile Fails talk, I talk about the strength of dependencies between teams and how dependencies get in the way. And then um, we talk about how to coordinate dependencies at the program layer. We talk about how to coordinate um, organizational constraints at the portfolio layer, right? So you have to build this whole entire mental model in order to be able to get the organization to kind of realize that, that this is something that's necessary. 
So you have to convince people that this is the way, right? And there's a whole line of conversation around, um, you know, assumptions and trade-offs and what's effective management, what's not, what do we know, what do we don't know, right? There's this whole thing. And then, and then you get to a point where you say, okay, so now how are you going to do it? Okay. So the, how are you going to do it is um, we use a technique called business capability modeling. And so we'll go in and look at the organization in terms of its constituent business capabilities. A business capability can be a product. It can be a product line. It can be a set of core services. It could be a platform. It could be a set of capabilities within the enterprise. It could be a set of features within um, the product. And so you want to look at the organization from the lens of what does it build? And then in an ideal situation, you want to have alignment between what does it build, who builds it, and what are the underlying supporting technologies? Okay. okay? And, and if you're able to do that, right, if you're able to do that, then you can start giving some of those teams greater autonomy to make local decisions, okay, as long as they're achieving the business goals, right? Most organizations that we go to, especially in early stage transformation, so like what we would call base camp one, base camp two, even if you're able to move to, um, to, you know, to use the language of the question to kind of a domain-based teaming strategy, rather than a functionally siloed-based teaming strategy, you still have dependencies between right. different parts of the organization. And one of the things that I like to say is that, is that with dependencies, you either manage dependencies or you break dependencies. And so most of the strategies that we have in Agile are what I call um, late dependency resolution strategies. So your typical Scrum of Scrums is a late dependency resolution strategy. If you identify a dependency within the, the sprint and you have to coordinate that um, across sprints later on, right? Late dependency resolution strategy. And so most of the coordination efforts that we put in at the program layer tend to be early dependency identification and resolution strategies. And so what that ends up being is typically like a, we call it a product owner team or a program team. It could be a specific instantiation of a scrum of scrums if it had the right constraints around it. And the idea is we want to identify and we want to resolve dependencies early. Okay. And then um, the interesting thing with dependencies, though, is dependencies have a cost, right? So you've got this coordinating entity, this orchestration layer that's running on top of the teams. It's feeding all of the different teams the, the work that, that they need to be doing. And then when um, something changes at the team level, right, you, you actually do need change management because you've got to go up to that orchestration layer. You've got to negotiate the change in the dependency and the change in the schedule and the change in the cost, right? Even if it's done with like velocity and burn down. And then you've got to communicate out to all the other teams um, what it is that they need to do differently, okay? And, and so that process from a change management perspective can be as informal or as formal as you want it to be. So as an agilist, obviously I would love it to be really lightweight, really collaborative, very dynamic. Um, it could be heavily process driven, heavily governed, right? It would be slower, right? But the, the, the deal is, is that like one of the analogies I use, and then I'm going to pause for a second. But like, well, I was actually talking about this the other day on our, some of our internal onboarding stuff. The problem with dependencies is think about like, if you want to go to dinner with you, your wife, and 10 of your friends, and somebody decides that they want to go someplace different, Okay. So they can decide to go someplace different, but then we don't all get together. 
Okay, so anytime when you've got when you've got to coordinate across domains, and and you know you 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 have to negotiate that change, and that's all we're really doing with change management is we're negotiating the change across domains. That's necessitated in the presence of dependencies. So I don't know if that was a clear answer to the question, but I mean that's the that's how I would build I, that up. Can I back up yeah. a little bit and ask? Yeah, questions? please. Yeah. You talked about um, when you started talking about the dependencies. You were talking about um, early and late dependencies and this approach. Like, yeah. so I'm just with late. You would advocate for taking an early approach. Can you give an example of what each of those is? Because I'm not sure that that is something people are going to like track. Yeah. On. So, so, so again, it's funny, right? So this is why I want to say first principles all the time, right? So at a, at a team level, right? And a team in Scrum basically encapsulates a value stream, right? That's the way it's designed to do, right? So all of the dependencies are within the team. Okay, and so when the product owner brings a backlog item to the team, the team works it out during sprint planning, right? And they negotiate those dependencies in real time as they're delivering whole complete user stories. Yeah. And then they get to the end and they say, okay, we've done this increment of work, life's good, product owner validates it, right? Like everything's great, okay? Right. So now imagine that we've got multiple teams that are working on some sort of integrated deliverable. Okay, that's the key, right? There's some sort of dependencies, right? It could be like a, a feature set and a set of core services. It could be multiple related feature sets. It could be multiple products within a suite, something like that, okay? So when, when teams have to coordinate, there has to be some sort of coordinating body, okay? Yeah. Now... Now, what like what Safe recommends, right? And this is how Safe, I believe, deals with it. At least, as to my understanding, is that you get together in what is the PI planning meeting, right? right. The big room planning, all the people in the room. Yeah. So you get all the teams, all the stakeholders. You do a big planning meeting, right? Each of the teams understands its part of the product, and then you do like the big dependency map wall. I think is the technique, right? So you do this dependency, and everybody understands the dependencies. I would suggest that in practice, maybe not by design, but in practice, even though we're doing some um, early identification of dependencies, at least relative to the PI, that the actual execution of those dependencies and the, and the timing of those dependencies causes late integration of dependencies and late resolution of dependencies often within that PI planning. Um, in the same way that increment. it would in a traditional approach. In the, in, in the same way that it would maybe in a traditional approach, right? Yeah. So, so what we find is that in early stage transformations, where there are still lots of dependencies between teams and maybe even dependencies between value strings, mm -hmm. that there's a greater need for orchestration across teams and across value strings. And yeah. the way that we've typically uh, recommended handling that is you get a small group of people to operate really as almost like an integrated product owner team. And, you know, we can debate who owns what and, you know, is there a chief product owner? Is who, you know, who gets to say, like, that's, all, that's just a, that's a negotiation. But typically, you know, that role needs to have some product focus or that, that group needs to have some product focus. Typically, somebody who understands the architecture of the overall system who can go and facilitate discovery across the different teams, who can go work with the other technical leads and business people and testers or what have you. And they can resolve the, the business issues between teams. They can resolve the technology issues between teams and they can resolve the timing and constraint and project management 
type issues between teens. And okay. so what we generally find is that if that group operates in a Kanban and operates in a continuous flow and tries to stay somewhere between three to four sprints up to a release or two ahead of the execution function, right, the teams, right, then what we can start to do is we can start to proactively identify those dependencies and then okay. sequence the work so that the dependencies are resolved early in the life cycle. Because okay. the whole thing with delivery is that we want to make sure dependencies and risks are resolved early so that they don't bite us late. Okay. And so that's the, that's the organizing principle here. Okay. And so what, what we generally find is that one of the failure modes that I see in practice with SAFE is that people show up to that big room planning meeting and the backlog emerges in that meeting and the yeah. dependencies are identified in that meeting and the work is sequenced in that meeting. Um, that might work in some contexts, but in a lot of the contexts we work in, the product suites that we're in are too big and they're too complex and they're too dynamic. And so the people don't walk in with that level of understanding or, or the level of understanding necessary to be able to actually orchestrate dependencies within the PI. So one of the things that will often add to a safe type implementation is a very proactive requirements decomposition process and dependency identification process so that when we show up into like a big room planning meeting, the backlogs and the sequencing and the dependencies and the constraints are better understood walking into the room. So rather than inventing that stuff in the room, we're basically, we're basically resolving conflicts in the room or misunderstandings in the room, okay? And so, but the short answer, right? The short thing is, is that you've got to pull some of that work forward, okay? Right. And, and if we have an aversion to planning ahead of the PI or we have aversion to planning ahead of the sprint, right? We see that as waste and we're not going to do that work. And then all of that stuff's going to hit us and it's going to, we're not going to have stable throughput. Okay. Can I buy an argument now? Yeah, please buy an argument. I would like to buy an all argument. Right. All yeah. right. So I'm listening to all this stuff that you're saying and it makes total sense to me, mm -hmm. but it also sounds like where I would say that that big upfront planning that happens in safe. Yeah. It makes sense. You know, define all mm -hmm. this stuff makes sense. I used to do that a long time ago. And now yeah. what you're talking about is for that to be more valuable, we should spend a little bit more time getting ready for that meeting, figuring that yeah. out, breaking it down, identify. And I used to do that too. And I put it all in this big chart. It was I, I see where you're talking, Henry. That's why I and keep trying to talk so, because so, I, I see the corner you're walking me into. Yeah, but no, no, I'm not trying to walk. I'm, I'm yes, trying I'm to think that. like, oh, I'm assuming that there's people that are listening or that will listen that come yeah. from like mine, project management background. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like Agile's trying to mansplain something to me that I already know how to do. So well, how is this well, different? Yeah. Well, so, so, you know, our friend Michelle Seiger, she wrote the book, right? 10, 12 years ago or something now, right? The, the, the project manager's guide to Agile kind of a thing. Um, bridge to agility. I, I, what is that? The project manager's bridge to agility. Oh, okay. That's been a long time. I read the She's book. She's going to be pissed then, if we get the title. Read it. Give, it Michelle a, give it Michelle a plug here, right? So, um, oh, and it's Stacia. Stacia. Um, yes. Yeah, I forgot to, forgot to include her. That was her co-author. Yeah, but, but so, you know, project management didn't go away 
when Agile got introduced, right? It got it got redistributed. We've talked about this before, right? Yeah. So the product owner has a piece of product project management. The team has a piece of project management. The Scrum Master has a piece of project management. In some contexts, the role of project manager went away, but the activities of project management didn't necessarily go away. Okay, and so and so here's the deal. And this is the reason why we we rolled out this quadrant model a few years ago. It's like when you look at the leading agile compass on our website, or what we kind of um, call the four quadrants. You know, you have the lower left quadrant, which is predictive convergent. You're either in predictive convergent quadrant because that's the goal of the system, or you're dealing with systems of record, or you're dealing with tons of dependencies, and you have to figure out how to coordinate work across teams. Can you explain predictive right? convergent before you go into the next quadrant? Because I'm not. Yeah, sure. go ahead. Yeah, I'm sorry. Can you explain what predictive convergent means to the folks who might not be familiar with it? Yeah. So, well, that's like a whole talk that we give on like I the quadrants and how they explain, right? But the, but the thing that that we want to like we want to break out is that is that agile isn't just this this one way of doing things. You know, agile can be different things depending upon the context that you're that you're trying to deliver with them. And so, you know, some of the old school methodologies like FDD and DSDM or RUP or whatever, um, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of agile that you can do within those larger frameworks. And then you've got a set of stuff that's like Scrum or less or safe or extreme programming or disciplined agile delivery, maybe that is lighter, um, team-based, iterative and incremental, right? Um, you know, more able to help us inspect and adapt, right? And then we have ultralight methodologies, which I might think like Lean Startup or Alistair's Crystal stuff, Crystal Clear, um, you know, some of the less stuff, some of the scrum stuff. Um, and so, and so if, if we have this notional idea that agile is like a thing and agilists don't plan, and if you do any forward planning whatsoever, then you're not agile. Well, then you limit the context in which agile can be applied. Okay. Agile is totally predicated. And this is the first principles among all the first principles is agile is totally predicated on the notional idea that a team can operate with autonomy and doesn't have any dependencies. Okay. Okay. That's just the fundamental principle of Scrum. And so as soon as a team has a dependency that's outside that team, then you have something that has to be coordinated. You just do, right? Maybe in a small environment, the Scrum Master goes and works it out or the team members work it out organically. Sure. As the complexity and the nature of those dependencies expands, then you have higher coordination costs. And so you either break dependencies or you manage dependencies. If you haven't broken dependencies, you have to manage dependencies. It feels inarguable to me. Okay. You, so if you haven't broken dependencies and now you're managing them, how do you manage dependencies proactively without some degree of forward planning? Right. Uh, yeah. And so now I'm going to like, I'm going to put the dot on the I, right? I'm going to cross then the T I'm, here. Then I got another question when you're done. Well, hold on a minute. So, so going back to your original question, the yeah. trick is, is what's the difference between what I'm suggesting and like waterfall project planning? It's going yeah. to be two things. It's going to be batch size and it's going to be the nature of the way that I plan. So what I want to do is I want to plan for the delivery of features rather than the, the um, execution of activities. Okay. And I want to break things into smaller batches and so that I can deliver on regular intervals and as I create, you know, as I deliver, I create opportunities 
to learn about what's really going on. So I can still forward plan in a mature, agile environment. I'm going to create opportunity to change when I learn new things. And that's the big difference between large bat-sized waterfall and what I'm talking about. Large bat-sized waterfall makes it very expensive to change. Yeah. Okay. Um, like using a lean Kanban-based flow, even if I'm doing forward planning uh, and, and going deeper into the backlog, I still create optionality when I learn new stuff. Is it as light as I would like it to be? No, but it's, it's, the, it's the dependencies that, that make it heavier. Yeah. It's sort of making me, this isn't a question, but it's just making me yeah. wonder if Waterfall would have worked better if it had been set up so that instead of that big release at the end, they just planned it all around, we're going to deliver something every two weeks. And well, well. so here's the interesting thing. I think there's, you just kind of alluded to it. I think there's two fundamental problems with the way that Waterfall is typically implemented, maybe three, maybe more, but we're going to focus on two or three. So first of all, because of the way organizations are functionally siloed, we tend to plan the activities of the functional silo rather than the production of the actual product. Right? Well, and that's, so that's also coming out of the whole Frederick Taylor thing. We have to maximize the machines that we put in place to run the machines. Sure, sure. So, so we're, we're basically planning activity within functional silos in a traditional organization. Um, if we organize, like if you go back to like the PMI stuff, right? We don't talk about putting activities into a Gantt chart. We talk about putting work packages. A work package is something that has value, right? So I've spent money. I've delivered something of value that the customer is willing to pay for. Okay, so these work packages and, and waterfall are, are supposed to be, I mean, I would like equate them to like a feature or an epic or a user story. Okay, and so we've put, we've substituted activity for work packages. And then also, right, I remember when I first, I can't remember what the earliest PMBOK I ever read was, but I, I remember as, as far back as three, we had this idea of progressive elaboration and rolling wave planning. Yeah. Okay. So what I'm suggesting in, um, in, in some of these larger organizations in the presence of dependencies, we have to get back to organizing around business capability focused teams or domain focused teams. We have to um, allocate work packages, features and epics to teams. Yeah. And we have to proactively deal with dependencies and create optionality for change by strategizing on the way we batch. Okay. Okay. And so, yeah. and so if, if that's waterfall and so be it, right. I had somebody walk up to me at the end of the talk I did in agile 2018 and said, so you're recommending using waterfall to roll out agile. I'm like, I just think that that um, reflects a bit of a, um, I want to be nice, but maybe myopic or a naive view of, of what it takes to deliver at scale. Yeah. Um, again, I'm just going to get the first principle, right. You either manage dependencies or you break them. You don't get it both ways. You can't so, say, leave dependencies in and then not manage them. You talked about the cost of that. And like, there's a cost, mm -hmm. whichever choice yeah. you make, there's a cost. Mm -hmm. yeah. Do you see organizations actually calculating that cost or is it just like, oh, getting rid of the dependency is going to be a pain in the ass. It's too much work. It's, it's tough, right? We're trying, to, we're trying to build some software internally to do it. Um, I'm sh maybe there's some really mature organizations that are doing it, but it's like the real cost. Like for me, like one of the things that I think about just very intuitively if I've got multiple teams within a value stream that have to be orchestrated because they have dependencies, um, I can calculate the costs of that orchestration layer. I could start to measure things like cost of delay, um, rework, right? Things like that, right? All of that could have an economic cost associated with it.
And then you could weigh the investment that it would take to actually break that dependency and increase local autonomy. And you could look at the ROI of that investment relative to the cost and you could calculate a payback period. Yeah. Right. But most of the organizations we're working with are, 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 are not that far in terms of how they're thinking about it. And often by the time they get that far, it's so intuitively obvious that they're just like, okay, yeah, okay. We just have to do it. Right. So, you know, I don't even have to, to put the R on it. So do you think that, uh, I was, I was talking with Dennis yesterday and, and we got into yeah. this conversation about. Who's Dennis? Dennis. Chief methodologist. Chief methodologist uh, for leading Andrew. You got it. We were talking about there being a, a function within the organization who was kind of like an information broker who's mm-hmm. tracking all the stuff that's happening, collecting all this data and feeding it back. And maybe that's mm-hmm. something that places the PMO that is saying you okay. can do this choice or this choice. Here's what the data says. This is going to do this. This is going to do this to cost, to resource utilization, to mm-hmm. defects we create, to throughput, all this mm-hmm. other stuff. Do you think we need to have data scientists working at that level, like almost like soothsayers for the C-level? Um, well, for a really mature organization, yeah, absolutely, right? I mean, it depends upon how data-driven the organization is. Um, if, it's a, if it's a small organization and it's making tons of money and it doesn't have to to justify all these costs and changes. There's a lot of things that make a ton of intuitive sense. And, you know, when we go in and work with organizations, we spend a lot of time building mindshare around the idea of encapsulation and orchestration costs and and the the downside of leaving dependencies in place. And then, you know, as we we start to install the early stages of the transformation, the, the costs associated with that coordination become visceral, right? They become clear. Um, you don't really have to sell DevOps to people and continuous integration and some of the other um, techniques that, that, that we deploy, right? A lot of times people intuitively understand that. But as, as you're building a business case, yeah. um, I think that data is, um, is, is incredibly valuable. But I, I'm not prepared to go out and say that like every organization needs to go hire a bunch of data scientists and gather a bunch of data around it. But I will tell you is that we won't let an engagement run without a significant amount of metrics about how the transformation is performing and, and the cost of some of these things and, and the overall organizational improvement. So some ability to measure and track and gather metrics and report out on those kinds of metrics, um, I think is, is absolutely essential. I think it's just good management. I mean, for our company, as, as small as we are, relatively speaking, um, you know, we have metrics about how stuff yeah. like that's performing. It's important. It, to me, it's interesting because it's sort of like, you know, with one of these watches, now you can track so much more data about your sleep and your food yeah. and all this other stuff. And I didn't have any of that before. And I don't know if having it is just making me drunk on data that's irrelevant or if it's actually making me smarter and making helping me make smarter choices. Well, you see where this goes, right? It always comes back to food and exercise and things like that, right? I mean, you know that you need to eat healthy. I was and trying run. to make it about the watch, man. It, again, this is going to be a theme, right? So first principles and healthy living with Mike Kotmeyer and Dave Frere, right? So, yeah. So, I mean, we know intuitively, we know intuitively that more exercise is better than less to a point. We know that healthy food is better than unhealthy food, right? You know that quantity matter, right? All that kind of stuff, right? So, you know that stuff intuitively. Like, like I've decided, like me personally, I've decided that, um, that I don't want to track all that stuff. I mean, I wear my watch and everything, but it's like, so I just don't eat carbohydrates, right? I exercise every day and, you know, I'm dropping some weight, right? So I'm actually feeling pretty good, right? Looking pretty, 
pretty pretty hot here. I'm just kidding. Sorry. Um, everybody who's uh, filming wow. me in the room is laughing at me now. So yeah. Okay. Pop. Not just, just in the room. Yeah. So um, yeah. So but you know to do those things, right? If you need, right, if you needed data to justify it, right, you could calculate, you could track your calories, right? You could track your steps, right? You could track how many miles you run the day. You could measure all kinds of analytics in the gym about what it is that you're doing, okay? Um, it just depends, right? It depends on what you need to motivate you to change. Well, so, so two, two things about it, and I'll try to get away from food. The dependency okay. conversation almost to me sounds like you shouldn't have any body fat. Like you shouldn't have any dependencies. Well, yeah, maybe you can get rid of all of them, but maybe the cost of getting rid of all of them is is not really worth it in the same way that you really don't want to have zero body fat. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if I, if I go down the body fat thing, but it, there's always a risk reward, right? It's like it's like where where it's really interesting, where where the where the where the the cost of breaking dependencies gets really expensive is often in, in legacy systems. And so we've worked with lots of banks over the years and any large company is gonna have a lot of legacy mainframe stuff. And taking your legacy monolith and turning it into a services oriented cloud-based architecture is non-trivial and it's expensive okay. and it takes a lot of time, flat out, okay? So, so there's going to be pieces of your organization where you're going to choose that orchestrating dependencies is the right way to spend dollars. And that's fine. Okay, you just can't do lean startup scrum stuff, right? You might be able to do some safe stuff. You might be yeah. able to do a whole lot of team-based iterative and incremental within a lean program and portfolio management framework, right? What we call Basecamp one and two. And, and you're gonna have some things where the, it's gonna make sense to spend dollars that way. And then yeah. you're gonna have some things that are gonna be incredibly lightweight. Like you're, like you're not gonna wanna put all that governance on top of your mobile apps or, your, or the stuff that's already in the cloud and under CICD sure. or your web, right? I mean, you wanna make that as lean and as fast as possible because you can. There's gonna be some things that, you're going, that are gonna have enough economic value that you're going to want to decouple them and pull them through from a services perspective, right? And those things you'll make the investments to break dependencies. Okay. But, but if, there's, if there's not economic justification, and, and again, that's the reason why we came up with our quadrants model and our base camp model is because you're going to have some pieces that it's not going to make sense to make the investment to break dependencies. But if okay. you don't, then you have to incur the cost to manage dependencies. Yeah. There's going to be some things that are going to be naturally independent, or you're going to want to pull out and make them more independent. And, and those should be economically justified as well. For new things, right, things that are innovative, like you couldn't get me to build a software product organization from scratch with dependencies in it. I mean, dependencies kill stuff, right? Um, now, I, I say that, right? I've never actually built a software product organization from scratch, but I would do every single thing in my power, even in how we, terms of how we've built Leading Agile as a consultancy. Um, like every single thing that we do is designed to increase local autonomy of the consultant or the consulting team. Like I want okay. as few dependencies between the people on the ground and other teams as absolutely possible. It's okay. just a design principle that I think is just universal. All right, are you, are you ready? I wanna run an experiment. Are you ready okay. to pivot? I wanna add okay. a segment to our new show, First Principles with Mike Kottmeyer. Okay, this we, we got our called, first segment. Okay, cool. This is gonna be called uh, coaching advice from Mike. So mm -hmm. I get okay. every single class. I have at least two people in that class who were sent from their company and they're from the PMO or some other part of the organization. Yeah. And their job 
is to figure out how Scrum works so they can go back and get the whole company to do Scrum the same way, which yeah. is completely opposite of what you just said. And I'm wondering, the people that I get, right, they might understand what you just said, but they have to go back and explain it to senior leadership. Yeah. What words of wisdom can you share with those people so that they can go back and, and make a convincing argument like, yeah, it doesn't work that way. You don't need everything to go down this path. Is it worth having that fighting that battle or should they let it kind of surface itself and figure itself out first? Man, I, I don't know, right? Um, you know, the way my brain is wired, um, if, you know, a lot of, a lot of, like when I go in and, and like I have a meeting with somebody, like, so if it was me, you know, and I know that I'm not the norm here, right? But it's like, if well, it were me. Higher level of the company. Well, maybe, right? Maybe. I mean, I get pulled into lots of rooms where I'm talking to people. And the first thing, the first thing you have to kind of assess, and now you said this is a coaching segment, right? Yeah. So this to so, me is kind of coaching one on coaching one one oh one. Right. So if you're gonna coach somebody, right, the first thing that you've got to think about is you gotta you gotta figure out what they believe about themselves. Okay. okay. And and so if I'm that person who's gone out and gotten the scrum religion and is responsible for bringing the scrum religion back, right? I need to understand, I need to understand two things. I need to understand what what makes scrum fundamentally work and you know i've been in your class and and they'll leave your class knowing why scrum works right what are the first right. principles of scrum how does it operate right all that kind of stuff yeah. and then what you've got to do is you got to go back to your organization and at least conceptually understand are the conditions in the organization right to do scrum yeah okay and and if they're not Right now, what I've got to do is I got to get one layer decayed. back from that. Right, I got to get one layer back, and so I've, now I've got to figure out what the people in the organization believe. And and I walk in lots of rooms that people absolutely believe that requirements are knowable, that human beings are fungible, that if I put together a plan that we can deliver against the plan. Um, I have tons of people I talk to that believe that we should be maximizing for resource utilization and efficiency. Okay. <laughs> Versus throughput, right? Cost accounting, accounting, right? It's so, and so you have to understand what people believe. And, you know, if you're, if you're good, you want to understand what they might be willing to change, or maybe if they're not explicitly willing to change, what are they willing to try? Okay. And so like you, you can't come back from scrum school and say, you know, I got, you know, Dave told me, and this is what we do and this is how we do it. And you guys need to comply and we need to do it the same way. Yeah. Right. You've got to understand what people's tolerances are. And, and that's the gap a lot. And, and that's a lot of the reason, like when we go in and consult, it's, it's all about figuring out what that leader is willing to, to try. And the whole base camp one, two, three, four, five is, is a recognition that in a, in a highly dependent environment that is functionally siloed, heavily governed, heavily controlled, right? Um, they're not willing to go to base camp five. They're not willing to go on day one all the way out to the extreme edge of agile. Well, they're For willing two to be there. They're just not willing to get there. Well, maybe, maybe, maybe not. Um, 
the the edges of agile, right? Um, where where this stuff's done really fast and really light is is not suitable for everybody's business context. It's not suitable for everybody's organizational context. It's not suitable for everybody's technology domain. And so they might be willing to go there, right, eventually. But often, like the base camp one idea is get them to try something. Get them to form a, a team around a domain or a business capability. But like be really real about where the dependencies exist and be able to layer some things on that create planning safety around them. And if you can get team-based, iterative and incremental delivery, you can get predictability, you can get steady throughput, you can get some things without having to go all the way to the edge, right? That's often something that people are willing to try because it makes better conceptual sense for them. Okay. And then as they have some success, then you can, you know, take them to base camp two, base camp three, base camp four, base camp five. Okay, but this idea that we've got to come back and say, you know, Scrum works, and, and this is how you do Scrum, and we need to do Scrum everywhere. Um, you know, I don't think that that's the right way to I, do it. I don't either. I just I think yeah. that I know that I get a lot of people who have been told they have to do that, and I always want to yeah. give them something tactical and say, look, go back and have this kind of conversation. Like it's the yeah. same thing. People keep asking us about governance and metrics, and. And I just want to give them something so they can go back to management and say, look, you keep saying this. What is the question you're actually asking? It's like you have to teach them to ask different questions. You got to teach them to ask the right questions. And so, again, first principles with Mike Kottmeyer and Dave Pryor, right? It's like what oh, we're, I got, what we're I got, I'm in the title now, too. <laughs> yeah, what we're trying to do is that we're trying to say, look, it's like you can't always answer the question from the direction it's asked. Yeah. You know, like even the, even the, we didn't even hit on this in the last question, right? Even the fundamental thing, we need to go learn the one true way so we can apply it everywhere and be consistent everywhere. Like even that, even that questions the wrong question. Right. Because it's like, there isn't something, there's patterns, right? There's reference architectures that I think are generally applicable, but I don't even know that I'd go so far as to say universally applicable. And then within that, those reference patterns, you know, then there's all kinds of macro level situationally specific things that need to be done. Yeah. And then within, and then once you've got underneath the macro stuff, I mean, now we're dealing with human beings and tendencies and things like that. And people respond differently to different ways of processing information and different manipulatives. And some people like software, some people like boards on the wall, some people have preferences for different styles of tools. Um, you know, it's like, I'm, I'm, I'm all for consistency and commonality where it makes sense, but I also want to make sure that, you know, that within reason, people have the ability to, to make local decisions as well. Why do you think that yeah. the C-level wants that consistency? What, what is it? Oh, what dude, it's like, it's because it's so, um, it just seems to make sense from like an efficiency perspective, right? And if, if everybody's operating off of the same process and everybody's doing it the same way, I mean, I mean, think about like what we do internally, you know, like every single, every single account has to be able to map their account to our base camp metaphor. Every single account lead has to be able to tell me starting quadrant in quadrant. Um, you know, every base camp has a standard set of outcomes associated with getting there. We have activity guides. We have all kinds of different stuff. And, and what, it, you know, we're actively, I very much have onboarding in my mind because we're growing or onboarding a lot of people. And one of the things I think about is that, is that I want to put constraints 
as high up in the stack as I possibly can. So like the thematic stuff, we all need to be aligned on. And then, um, you know, some of the core methodology stuff that we've built, we all need to be aligned on. As we get into the outcomes-based stuff, right, we have a little bit more flexibility. When we get into the activity-based stuff, then, um, then we have even more flexibility. And, and where I learned that was, I mean, even in our earliest days when it was just me and Dennis and I would go out and I would, you know, get a deal teed up and, and I wasn't going to do the work and Dennis was going to do the work. Like I learned early on that, like, I can't control what comes out of anybody's mouth in any given time, right? So a leading agile consulting gets on the ground. They've got their own set of backgrounds, own set of skills, own set of experiences, and they're going to coach from a place of integrity within them. Okay. And so what I've got to do is I've got to create a system that allows for that um, local autonomy and, th and them to be able to, to teach from that place of passion. So as long as we're aligned at the highest levels, we've created the right containers, then I should be able to put um, a new coach on the ground and have them operate within our framework better. It's a little bit like that. I want enough consistency at, at the program level and the uh, portfolio level and the team level and in the structures and in the basic practices and in the cadences and flows. But underneath that, I should be able to let people decide. Okay. okay? So from an executive's perspective, it can't be a total free-for-all because the company isn't a thousand people all doing their own thing. It's a thousand people delivering against an integrated vision, at least it should be. And, okay. but what we have to do is we have to create structures and frameworks and practices that, that, that align people rather than constrain them. And that's the trick, right? That actually gets back to your first question, right? Around how to, how to move towards um, domain-based organizations. It's like, it's like, it's fundamentally an alignment problem. How do we get people aligned in such a way that they can make local decisions that we have reasonable assurance will kind of roll up into the bigger goals that we're trying to do. Yeah. So it's an alignment issue fundamentally. It's, it's kind of like turn the ship around-ish a bit. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So yeah. Dave I, my yeah. yeah, my assumption was that it was, a lot of it was about being able to look at stuff across the portfolio and understand how things were performing in relationship to one another. Yeah. I mean, that's part of it. I mean, I, I look at like I, you know, within the software we've built internally, you know, I want SOWs tracked the same way. I want um, project um, engagement schedules tracked the same way. I want financials reported the same way um, because it's like, it's not only do I need to be able to not have to like rejigger my brain every single time I look at a different account, but I also have to be able to roll that data up and, and look at the aggregate risk in our portfolio. Okay, or where when we need to go sign a new client or when we need to go do different work. Um, so I think that's reasonable, right? So a reasonable set of constraints around somebody is different than an onerous set of constraints, right? You got to recognize what's common and can be integrated and then let go of the data that can't be. Okay. Okay. So we have a question from an audience member. Can I throw this one at you? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. That's why I was looking away. I don't know if people can see me when you're talking or not, but I can see the little chat light blank on the computer screen. I knew somebody was asking something. I can't see what it is though. All right. And I don't have my hold on. I'm an old man. I need my uh -oh. you gotta put your glasses on. Yeah. yeah. And while you're talking, I'm gonna switch my headset because it's about to die. Um, okay. Can you recap the business value driver of architecture and assets versus velocity and fast value capture? 
Hey, say it again for me. Read, yeah. Just read it. <laughs> uh, it says, can you recap the business value driver of architecture and assets versus velocity and fast value capture? Okay, so let me see if I can intuit what's underneath this question, right? So um, can we quantify the business value of architecture versus velocity and fast value capture? Um, okay. Does that mean that, so, that if you're, you, you put also like architecture in place first, it slows the Well, but hold on, right? So, so architecture, architecture is like a thing, right? So you can do architecture, you can design architecture, you can build architecture, but architecture is a thing, right? Whether you're intentional about architecture or not intentional about architecture, your system will have an architecture. It just will, right? Whether, whether you meant to have an architecture or you didn't, you will have an architecture, okay? And, and architectures that um, reflect encapsulation strategies and minimal orchestration strategies will tend to operate with more agility than architectures where there's tight coupling and a lot of orchestration, okay? It's, so it's almost like underneath the question is this idea of why would I pay attention to architecture why wouldn't I just pay attention to going fast and, and doing really quick value realization? Okay, so we talked about false dichotomies between, um, between uh, points here. And I think this is a little bit of a false dichotomy. Now, so let's say I'm a startup and I have to get to market really, really, really fast, right? You could think of leading agile as that way, right? We hit maybe 20 or 30 people and we had kind of grown and we didn't really have an intentional organizational architecture. Okay. We had an architecture, but we didn't, we weren't intentional about it. Okay. <clears throat> so if you're a startup and you're building software really fast and you have to get to market as cheaply as possible, then you might disregard architecture and you might go for um, really quick market value, really quick revenue realization, right? All that kind of stuff. But you will hit a point in the life cycle of that product where the lack of attention to architecture will slow you down. And what organizations do is they'll get to that point and then they have a choice. They either, they either refactor it to make sure that the architecture that they've built is scalable or they blow past it and keep going. And this is what I think. I think most of the reason why organizations are in need of transformation is because they hit that tipping point and they made, for whatever reasons, good reasons, bad reasons, they made the wrong call, right? They decided not to refactor. They decided not to architect for scale. They decided not to architect for speed and they just kept going. And the ironic thing is that at some point in time, it becomes so expensive to build and maintain that product Right. that they can't realize value out of it anymore. Okay. Okay. And so, and so I think if I'm getting to the question right, there are times when it is absolutely um, the best decision to get in market fast, to prove the idea, to start generating revenue, right? But if you're smart, there's going to come a point where you're going to have to say 
that it makes more sense to take a little step back, pivot over, re-architect for scale so that when you do grow, that you're going to grow faster and that you're going to be able to deliver software more reliably and more predictably and with greater speed in the market. And I think, again, I think that's where a lot of companies, they, they, didn't, they didn't do that pivot. Maybe they yeah. couldn't afford it. Maybe they couldn't get the product people to buy into it. Maybe they couldn't get investment dollars. I don't know, right? I'm, no judgment. But if you, if you make the decision to stay on the architecture you have, then you, you might find yourself getting to issues of scale um, later on. Well, and there's a lot of reasons why at the senior level that, you, that it would make sense to just keep stuff going. I mean, if you're only going to be in that job 18 months or a year, two years, whatever, just, you know, let somebody else pay the bill. But yeah, I wasn't really getting, I mean, it's like, it's like to hold that point of view, Dave, is so cynical. And I know you're not a cynical, okay. maybe you're not a cynical no, guy. No, I just, I don't cynical. see a lot of companies stopping the car to fix the car. I'm not saying, I'm not saying it doesn't happen. Yeah. Right. But it's like, but it's like, if you're run by a leadership team that is so myopically focused on short-term goals for you know, people's individual incentives, then you have a fundamentally different problem, right? There's something that's broken behind the scenes oh, in terms yeah. of I, people are insane, I, I, right? And yeah. so you get into a whole different set of issues. But even with like the best of intentions, right? People are trying to do the right thing. They're right. protecting short-term and long-term economics. Maybe they just don't fundamentally understand the long-term impacts of the, of the kind of organization they're building or the cost. Or maybe, um, and this is what I think a lot of organizations are dealing with, is that they don't really realize the impact of disruptive change or new competition and new technology areas. So some lighter, more nimble, faster company comes along that's built on better principles, right? Yeah. Better architectural design, better scalability, and they start taking clients away. So now this company that was like thriving for 30 or 40 years like on this serious. technology platform and everything's great, it can't move fast enough anymore. Yeah. Right. So they've been disrupted at that point. Right. So maybe it was even the right decision 30 or 40 years ago or 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah. But the nature of the markets changed. And now we look back and go, oh, gosh, if I had to do it over. Um, I think it was Bob Martin one time at a talk said, um, you know, if we had known how long all this COBOL programming would have been in production, we probably would have spent an extra couple months getting it right. So, yeah. And I didn't mean it. I didn't mean I it. In a point, point. I was yeah. just. I was thinking that most of these people are so busy fighting the fire that's on at their feet that the fire that's going to happen later, like whatever, dude, yeah. it's not, you know, we, this yeah, is a it, it, fire right now. It's really tough, man. It's like, you know, we, you know, it's a really difficult balancing act. I have a lot of empathy as an entrepreneur, you know, having built leading agile up to what 80, 85 people now um, it's really tough because as you grow, you have to constantly pay attention to how your architecture is emerging, how your culture is emerging. Um, do we have practices in place that aren't great anymore? Um, we've refactored Leading Agile internally four or five times. Um, you know, we've rebuilt compensation plans. Um, we make investments um, to isolate services when appropriate. Um, and, and that's from a company that does this for companies for a living. And it's still really difficult. And, and the, candidly, you've got to be profitable enough to be able to do it, too, because all of that um, refactoring and reorganization requires investment and it requires um, it creates cognitive load on your employees. So what would somebody be able to say to someone in your position to get you to be open to the idea of stopping the train to fix the thing that's broken? Because if you are an entrepreneur and you're trying to keep the mm -hmm. business going, you're trying to help it grow, you're so busy focused on 
get we got to get people paid. We got to get enough work. We got to keep the machine running. If, if that's the situation you're in, man, that might be all you can do, right? Because like I said, you know, there's a couple of different conditions that we've got here, right? It's like, you've got the conditions where you're in survival mode. And when you're in survival mode, you're surviving, right? You don't have the resources to stop and do that. You don't have that optionality we're talking about. You might not have the optionality, right? What you hope is, is that your initial idea was solid enough and it was profitable enough. And you have enough confidence in the future that it's worth it to take a step back and to refactor so you, that you can grow, right? So you've proven your initial concept, right? You understand there's a market, you understand that there's opportunity to scale and you can anticipate that you're gonna have problems further along, right? That was kind of like the second set of conditions. Yeah. And then the third set of conditions is, you know what? You've totally taken over market, you're totally killing it. You have a cash cow for 15, 20 years, everything's great. And then somebody comes along and disrupts you. So I don't know the answer to that question. Is it, would it have been better to position yourself for the future when you don't really even know you're going to be around 20 well, yeah. years from now? Years yeah, I don't know, right? Yeah. yourself against Amazon, probably not. Well, you know, I don't know much well, about well, Amazon, but I think their whole cloud strategy kind of emerged from the fact that I think they built that product and I might be wrong, but I, they built that product um, with less than optimal, less than scalable um, uh, technology practices and then had to like take a step back and go, this thing's not going to get any bigger. It can't go where it needs to go. Yeah. Right. Unless we, unless we, you know, do all this cloud stuff. Like that was, that was pretty smart decision on their part. Right. And we see where it got them. Yeah. But I, I guess I, I was thinking just because Sears was just in the news about that shutting down, there's not really much they could have done <laughs> to protect themselves against. Yeah. I don't know. I don't, I don't know about, I, yeah. I don't know about Sears. I don't know about that retail space, but you know, I imagine that there were decisions that they probably could have made at some point in time that maybe would have protected them from this, Yeah, but I don't know. Right. So, okay. so first principles, kind of final word on this. What is it that you want the yeah. folks to take away from this conversation? Cause we're almost at the top of the hour. Yeah, I mean, just as we as we um, you know as we do this right, um, you know, every couple of weeks, I'm not sure if we're on a regular cadence yet. Um, the thing, what is that? We're we're about every two weeks. About every two weeks, yeah. Um, but so the 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 challenge is is that is that when you're when you're asking these questions, you know, we made the point I think it was last week or the week before, maybe one of our podcasts, that there's a whole lot of literature out there that is in the domain that people aren't reading anymore. The early Poppendick work, the early Coburn work, the early Kent Beck, right? Early Martin Fowler stuff, right? Where people were like deeply thinking through why these methodologies work. And what happened is that as, they, as these ideas went to market, you know, they initially got codified in the manifesto, then they get codified into the CSM, and they get codified into SAFE. And what we start to learn is we start to learn the practices and we stop learning why this stuff works, right? And so the problem that we have when we answer some of these questions is we get a question and it's like, it's the wrong question. Yeah. Right. It's the wrong question. There's sometimes like, how do you do scrum? Like, this is my favorite wrong question. How do you do scrum when you don't have a product owner? You don't. <laughs> Badly. You just don't. You might do something that kind of looks like Scrum. You might yeah. do something that achieves the goal of Scrum, but but you don't, yeah. right? Um, more fundamentally, how do I do Agile if I can't get a clearly well-articulated backlog that I can deliver an increment of at the end of every sprint? You don't, Yeah. right? So the question isn't how do I do Scrum in the absence of an essential component? The question is, is, how do I create a context where that essential component is present, right? Okay. That's a different question, right? Yeah. 
you know? And that's the angle that we need to answer these things from, because if we, if we start trying to talk to our audience here about how to take shortcuts and make trade-offs, all we're going to do, it's, like, it's just going to frustrate everybody because there's no good answers to any of these questions. And you've yeah. got to roll it far enough back that, that when we do come to an answer, it might be tough, might not be possible. Maybe you can't influence it, but it's still the right answer. Yeah. Right. And that's the only way that I want to answer these questions with you. All right, cool. Well, thank you for your time. And thanks for the folks who sent yeah. in questions. So we did. I, yeah, I appreciate you guys joining us. Awesome.